Chapter 3 of The Drums of Jeopardy. Reading by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Drums of Jeopardy by Harold McGrath. Chapter 3 Hawksley heard the panting of an engine and turned his head. Dimly he saw a giant bridge and a long drab train moving across it. He picked up the fallen man's cap and tried it on. Not a particularly good fit, but it would serve. He then trotted round the deckhouse to the street side, jumped to the wharf, and sucking the cracked knuckles of his right hand, fell into a steady dog-trot, which carried him to the station he had left so hopefully an hour and a half gone. An accommodation train eventually deposited him in Poughkeepsie, where he purchased a cap and a sturdy walking-stick. The stubble on his chin and cheeks began to irritate him intensely, but he could not rid himself of the idea that a barber's chair would be inviting danger. He was now tolerably certain that from one end of the continent to the other his presence was known. His life and his property, they would be after both. Even now there might be men in this strange town seeking him. The closer he got to New York, the more active and wide awake they would become. He walked the streets, his glance constantly roving. But apparently no one paid the least attention to him. Finally he returned to the railway station, and at six o'clock that evening he left the platform of the 125th Street station, and appraised covertly the men who accompanied him to the street. He felt assured that they were all Americans. Probably they were, but there are still some stray fools of American birth who cannot accept the great American doctrine as the only error visible in this present flood. Perhaps one of these accompanied Hawksley to the street. Whatever he was, one had upon order met every south-going train since seven o'clock that morning, when Quasimodo, paying from the gold hidden in his belt, had sent forth the telegraphic alarm. The man hurried across the street, and followed Hawksley by matching his steps. His business was merely to learn the other's destination, and then to report. Across the earth a tempest had been loosed. But Ariel did not ride it, Caliban did. The scythe of terror was harvesting a type, and the innocent were bending with the guilty. Suddenly Hawksley felt young, revivified free. He had arrived. Surmounting indescribable hazards and hardships, he walked the pavement of New York. In an hour the mutable quicksands of a great city would swallow him forever. Free. He wanted to stroll about, peer into shop windows, watch the amazing electric signs, dally, but he still had much to accomplish. He searched for a telephone sign. It was necessary that he find one immediately. He had once spent six weeks in and about this marvelous city, and he had a vague recollection of the blue and white enamel signs. Shortly he found one. It was a pay station in the rear of a news and tobacco shop. He entered a booth, but discovered that he had no five-cent pieces in his purse. He hurried out to the girl behind the cigar stand. 
she was exhibiting a box of cigars to a customer, who selected three, paid for them, and walked away. Hawksley, boiling with haste to have his affair done, flung a silver coin toward the girl. Five cent pieces. "'Will you take them with you, or shall I send them?' asked the girl, earnestly. "'I beg your pardon. Any particular kind of ribbon you want the box tied with?' "'I beg your pardon,' repeated Hawksley, harried and bewildered. "'But I'm in a hurry.' "'Too much of a hurry to leave out the bark when you ask a favor. "'I make change out of courtesy, and you all bark at me nickel, nickel, as if that was my job.' A thousand apologies, contritely. And don't make it any worse by suggesting a movie after supper. My mother never lets me go out after dark. I rather fancy she's quite sensible. Still, you seem able to take care of yourself. I might suggest. With that black eye? Nay, nay, I'll bet somebody's brother gave it to you. Venus was not on that occasion in ascendancy. Thank you for the change. Hawksley swung on his heel and re-entered the booth. A great weariness oppressed him. A longing, almost irresistible, came to him to go out and cry aloud, Here I am, kill me, I am tired and done. For he had recognized the purchaser of the cigars as one of the men who had left the 125th Street station at the same time as he. He remembered distinctly that this man had been in a hurry. Perhaps this whole dizzy affair was reacting upon his imagination psychologically, and turning harmless individuals into enemies. "'Hello,' said a man's voice over the wire. "'Is Mr. Rathbone there?' "'Captain Rathbone is with his regiment at Coblenz, sir.' "'Coblenz?' "'Yes, sir. I do not expect his return until near midsummer, sir. Uh, who is this talking?' "'Have you opened a cable from Yokohama?' "'This is Mr. Hawksley.' The voice became excited. "'Oh, sir, you will come right away. I alone understand, sir. You will remember me when you see me. I'm the captain's butler, sir, Jenkins. He cabled back to give you the entire run of the house, as long as you desire it. He advised me to notify you that he had also prepared the banker against your arrival.' "'Have your luggage sent here at once, sir. Dinner will be at your convenience.' Hawksley's body relaxed. A lump came into his throat. Here was a friend, anyhow, ready to serve him though he was thousands of miles away. When he could trust himself to speak, he said, "'Sorry, it will be impossible to accept the hospitality at present. I shall call in a few days, however, to establish my identity.' "'Thank you. Good evening.' "'Just a moment, sir. I may have an important cable to transmit to you. It would be wise to leave me your address, sir.' Hawksley hesitated a moment. After all, he could trust this perfect old servant whom he remembered. He gave the address. As he came out of the booth, the girl stretched forth an arm to detain him. He stopped. "'I'm sorry I spoke like that,' she said. "'But I'm so tired.' i've been on my feet all day and everybody's been barking and growling and if i'd taken in as many nickels as i passed out in change the boss would be rich give me a dozen of those roses there she sold flowers also the pink ones how much he asked two fifty he laid down the money 
Never mind the box. They're for you. Good evening." The girl stared at the flowers, as Ali Baba must have stared at the cask with rubies. "'For me?' she whispered. "'For nothing?' Her eyes blurred. She never saw Hawksley again, but that was of no importance. She had a gentle deed to put away in the lavender of recollection. Outside Hawksley could see nothing of the man who had bought the cigars. At any rate, further dodging would be useless. He would go directly to his destination. Old Gregor had sent him a duplicate key to the apartment. He could hide there for a day or two, then visit Rathbone's banker at his residence in the night to establish his identity. Gregor could be trusted to carry the wallet and the pouch to the bank. Once these were walled in steel, half the battle would be over. He would have nothing to guard thereafter but his life. He laughed brokenly. Nothing but the clothes he stood in. He never could claim the belongings he'd been forced to leave in that hotel back yonder. But there was loyal old Gregor. Somebody would be honestly glad to see him. The poor old chap. Astonishing, but of late he was always thinking in English. He hailed the first free taxicab he saw, climbed in, and was driven downtown. He looked back constantly. Was he followed? There was no way of telling. The street was alive with vehicles tearing north and south, with frequent stoppage for the passing of those racing east and west. The destination of Hawksley's cab was an old-fashioned apartment house in 80th Street. Gregor would have a meal ready and it struck Hawksley forcibly that he was hungry, that he had not touched food since the night before. Gregor, valeting in a hotel, pressing coats and trousers and sewing on buttons. Groggy old world, wasn't it? Gregor, pressing the trousers of the hoi polloi. Gregor, who could have sent New York mad with that old Stradivarius of his. But Gregor was wise. Safety for him lay in obscurity, and what was more obscure than a hotel valet? He did not seek the elevator, but mounted the first flight of stairs. He saw two doors, one on each side of the landing. He saw at one, stooped and peered at the card over the bell. Conover. Gregor's was opposite. Having a key, he did not knock, but unlocked the door and stepped into the dark hall. "'Stefani, Gregor!' he called joyously. "'Stefani, my old friend! It is I!' Silence. But that was understandable. Either Gregor had not returned from his labors, or he was out gathering the essentials for the evening meal. Judging from the variety of odors that swam the halls of this human warren, many suppers were in the process of making, and the top flavor was garlic." He sniffed pleasurably. Not that the smell of garlic quickened his hunger. It merely sent his thought galloping backward a score of years. He saw Stefani Gregor and a small boy in mountain costume footing it sturdily along the dizzy goat paths of the rugged hills, saw the two sitting on some ruddy promontory and munching black bread rubbed with garlic. Ambrosia his mother's horror when she smelt his breath, as if garlic had not been one of her birthrights, his uncle roaring out in his bull's voice that 
black bread and garlic were good for little boys' stomachs and made the stuff of soldiers. Black bread and garlic and the golden age. After he had flooded the hall with light, he began a tour of inspection. The rooms were rather bare, but clean and orderly. Here and there were items that kept the homeland green in the recollection. He came to the bedroom last. He hesitated for a moment before opening the door. The lights told him why Gregor had not greeted his entering hail. The overturned reading lamp, the broken chair, the letters and papers strewn about the floor, the rifled bureau drawers. These things spoke plainly enough. Gregor was a prisoner somewhere in this vast city, or he was dead. Hawksley stood motionless for a space. And he must remain here at least for a night and a day. He would not dare risk another hotel. He could, of course, go to the splendid Rathbone place, but it would not be fair to invite tragedy across that threshold. A ball of crushed paper at his feet attracted his attention. He kicked at it absently, followed and picked it up, his thought on other things. He was aimlessly smoothing it out when an English word caught his eye. English. He smoothed the crumpled sheet and read, "'If you find this, it is the will of God. I have been watched for several days, and am now convinced that they have always known I was here, but they were leaving me alone for some unknown purpose. I rolled this ball because anything folded and left in a conspicuous place would be useless should they come for me. I understand.' It is you, poor boy. They are watching me in hopes of catching you, and I've no way to warn you not to come here. It was after I sent you the key that I learned the truth. God bless you and guard you. Stefani. Hawksley tore the note into scraps. Food and sleep. He walked toward the kitchen, musing. What an odd mixture he was. Superficially British, with the British outlook, and yet filled with the dancing blood of the Latin and the cold phlegmatic blood of the Slav. He was like a schoolmaster with two students too big for him to handle. Always the Latin was dispossessing the Slav, or the Slav was ousting the Latin. With fatalistic confidence that nevermore would he look upon the kindly face of Stefani Gregor alive, he went in search of food. Not a crust did he find. In the ice-chest there was a bottle of milk, soured. Hungry, and not a crumb. And he dared not go out in search of food. No one had observed his entrance to the apartment, but it was improbable that such luck would attend him a second time. He returned to the bedroom. He did not turn on the light, because a novel idea had blossomed unexpectedly. A Latin idea. There might be food on some window-ledge. He would leave payment. He proceeded to the window, throwing up both it and the curtain, and looked out. Ripping, there was a fire escape. As he slipped a leg over the sill, a golden square sprang into existence across the way. Immediately he forgot his foraging instincts. In a moment he was all Latin, always susceptible to the enchantment of beauty. The distance across the court was less than forty feet. He could see the girl quite plainly as she set about the preparation of her evening meal. 
he forgot his danger, his hunger, his code of ethics, which did not permit him to gaze at a young woman through a window. Alone. He was alone, and she was alone. A novel idea popped into his head. He chuckled, and the sound of that chuckle in his ear somehow brought back his resolve to carry on, to pass out, if so he must, fighting. He would knock on yonder window and ask the beautiful lady Slavy for a bit of her supper. End of chapter 3